0: In West Virginia, things go from light to dark real quick. Deep in the hollers of cold country, it's not hard to get lost in the history of it all. Original brick buildings and chip paint, a service station, two pumps and decades since its last use. There is an involuntary embrace to this isolation that occurs one that wrenches you into its possession and before you know it you can't escape its stories its people its monsters they all come to light and lead you further into the darkness i came out here with paranormal investigators greg and dana newkirk a few times in the fall of 2018 record stories for Euphemet, those can be heard in season one on this very podcast feed this set of stories however are a different kind in this edition of obscura we take a look back at unheard documentary audio from our exploration we hear stories of others people experiencers who have come into contact with a now notorious set of mid-century supernatural lore It's a tale that begins with a salesman named Woodrow Derenberger and a strange encounter on Highway I-77 near Parkersburg, West Virginia, and ends just over a year later in Point Pleasant with the deaths of 46 people in one of the most shocking roadway tragedies in American history. I'm Jim Perry. This is Obscura, a look back at the stories of Euphemet season one, this time with Monsters next on Obscura. I recently read this quote by the late philosopher, Psychonaut, writer Robert Anton Wilson. It was on the back of his book, Cosmic Trigger, but I swear I read the entire thing. He states that the main thing he learned from all of his metaphysical experiments and paranormal investigations, is that reality is always plural and mutable. Now, what does that mean? I, I mean, I would suppose if you were a follower of someone like Wilson, you may say it means whatever you want it to mean. And I guess, let's take a second, that is indeed what that statement perhaps infers about reality itself, right? You see, you come to find in this business of the strange that reality is seemingly flexible, that things you once found as true and real can change, right in front of your eyes. For some, the mutable state of reality reveals its nature in the form of synchronicity, dreams, ghosts, perhaps strange lights or visits from unearthly entities. Now, there are certain places on Earth and certain times or flaps where this phenomenon is almost hypercharged. Its expression of attention getting reality pokes, affecting entire communities. For these people, reality upends, and monsters become real. In 1966, writer John Keel found this to be true about Point Pleasant, West Virginia. That year he was traveling the country, interviewing witnesses, working on articles about UFOs for Playboy magazine. When over the wire came a story about four teens encountering a red eyed winged beast. Point Pleasant was the site, and about two hours north of where Keel was in Beckley, investigating reports of a cat with wings. Expecting to only stay a few hours, Keel would have never imagined that the drive to Point Pleasant that day marked the end of his old life. Over the next year, while collecting over a hundred frightening reports, Keel learned that this phenomenon could greatly challenge its investigators. He entered a shadowy world where black cars vanished on country roads, meaningless messages turned up in hotel rooms, and his phone and mail suffered strange interceptions. Keel was now just as much part of the story as the shuddering witnesses he interviewed. So what happened in West Virginia, and why? This brought the Newkirks and I down here, with a first stop the Mothman Museum. I wanted to know what kicked this all off. Was it the aforementioned beast spotted by the teens, or something altogether more strange?
1: It's a spooky place, and there's a lot of stuff here that is significant and really would only be significant to someone who understood how important it is so you kind of know that like you know a lot of it kind of gets passed over by people just kind of wandering off to see other things and that's okay but there's moments where like you can kind of stand here and look at something and be like These are the original newspaper clippings of like the sightings like these were in people's kitchens and on their living room you know couches and they were talking about this happening when it was happening so it's it's a spooky place in real life life. yeah exactly they they were handling these newspapers and reading about what was happening in their community as it was happening so i feel like the spirit of that moment and that time period is still really present in point pleasant and specifically In the museum, because you just have so many important pieces of history. Um, It's fun to come, but it's also pretty spooky.
2: Over here is what I think is one of the coolest things. These are original Derenberger tapes where he talks about running into the men in black. Some of the first instances of the men in black ever, and they're on that tape right there. And they're here. Like, here's the original sighting. This is all stuff that was uh, recorded from those tapes. November 4th, I was driving
0: home from Pomeroy, Ohio, and a friend of mine was riding with me. We were going down Highway 7 when I began having a tingling sensation around my eyes and the top of my forehead. I rubbed my forehead and I knew at the same time that this was Mr. Cold trying to make contact with me again with telepathy. Mr. Cold.
2: Indrid Cold, the injured Cold, a figure that's kind of existed on the fringes of a lot of paranormal sightings for a long time and, you know, even has some weird connection to the, the goblin story that we talked about forever ago. Uh, this strange figure that supposedly is some strange paranormal entity that's interacted with people's lives at the fringes. And there's original tapes of interviews with people who've met him like sitting right in front of us
0: what you're about to hear is witness Woodrow Derenberger's voice detailing the events of November 2nd 1966 this tape has been edited for clarity but no information has been changed
3: well I was I am a salesman and I drive a truck and last night Uh, Shortly after 7 o'clock, I was coming from Marietta, Ohio, coming down Interstate 77. And just before I came to the intersection of uh, Route 47, there was a car past me, overtaking me from behind. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. I, I seen it out of the corner of my eye and I first thought it was just another car and then I knew it wasn't a car almost immediately and I turned and looked at it and I would say it was approximately 30 to 35 feet long and it came directly across past my truck and t- immediately turned sideways. It was completely crossed the two-lane highway. It was Completely blocked me. I went partly (coughs) off of the road onto the berm to try to go around it, but I couldn't get around it It, This object was between a real Dark gray and black. I would call it a charcoal collar It glistened in my headlights my headlights when it stopped me my headlights were shining directly on it and as soon as it came to a stop immediately there was a door on the side facing me open, and this man stepped out, and he started walking immediately right to the right-hand side of my truck. But when he came to the door and looked in through the window from the right-hand side of the truck, then I realized that he was speaking, but his lips were not moving, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck, and I'd done what he asked. His lips did not move. He uttered no words at all. That frightened me more than anything I believe that had happened up until I time. even more so than when I actually seen the object. I know that uh, <clears throat> he told me not to be frightened. He was very reassuring in his attitude. He was friendly. He smiled continuously while I talked to him. I believe that he had me to roll the window down so he could look at me without looking through the glass because the glass was very rain Street, And uh, that is the impression that I got, that he wanted the window down so I'd be in closer communication with him or so we could see each other. He He told me twice that I could either talk or I could think, which either would be better or easier for me. He was very nice-looking man. He was neat, and uh, he had a top coat on, and it was zippered down the front. Uh, his top, uh, the top two buttons, like my coat here, were open, and he. This uh, outfit was a, a shiny material. It was a, a glossy outfit, uh, like it was metallic. I suppose you would call it and his shirt was a little bit darker than his jacket and below his coat he had on trousers of the same kind of a cloth material and I believe the trousers were just a shade lighter than his coat he looked perfectly natural and Norman as any human being he had uh, his face looked like he had a, a good tan a deep sun tan he was not too dark but it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot and had a good tan. His hair was combed straight back, and it was a dark brown, and he seemed to have uh, a good thick head of hair, and his eyebrows, his face, uh, his features were very normal. Uh, I don't believe that he looked any different from any other man that we'd meet on the street and this man stood there and he uh, he first asked me what I was called and I knew he meant my name and I told him my name and uh, he asked me he said "Uh, why are you frightened he said don't be frightened we wish you no harm he said we mean you no harm we wish you only happiness and uh, I told him my name and when I told him my name he said he was called Cold that was the name he was called by. and he asked me what the city of Parkinsburg. He pointed to the lights. He didn't point, but he gave the impression that he was pointing and he asked me what that was called. And I told him it was a Parkersburg. It was a city, a town. And he asked me if most all the people lived in my, this city or town. And I explained to him uh, that it was a place of business, it's where we transacted our business, that the people lived in communities, outlying communities, most of the people. And when I told him that this was a city, he said that his, where his home was, that that was called a gathering. And uh, again, he told me not to be frightened, which I I was, I was very frightened. But yet he stood there, and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He was, he appeared very courteous and friendly. And after I talked with him a while, he terminated his conversation very quickly. Uh, one second we were talking there, and the next thing this vehicle settled down right beside, he stepped back from the truck. And the, when he stepped back, this thing came right back down. And he said, uh, Mr. Dernberger, we will see you again. He didn't say I. He said, we will see you again. And uh, the door closed, and the vehicle lifted straight up. It went straight, just as straight as you could point upward. And it went up, and uh, I did see it. And uh, occasionally as I was talking to this man, I looked up, and it was still there. It was approximately, approximately 50 to 75 feet off of the ground and it stayed there all the time this man was talking to Well my wife was, uh, she took it pretty calmly but uh, it kind of made her nervous. She she worried today before I started back to work she thought uh, the same thing could happen again and uh, she believes that what I told her and she's pretty upset herself about it I, w- I was very nervous I was very upset after this happened and after I got home and after I had calmed down I can look back now and I see where I should have asked him questions and I believe I had the impression that he would have answered these questions readily I have never have believed in frying saucers before I I have heard about them. A few times, I've even read in the paper about flying objects, but I honestly never did believe in it. I believe in what I seen last night. I believe it was—I don't believe it was a saucer, but I believe it was an alien, some kind of an aircraft, a spacecraft, or something. But uh, what I saw last night, I know that I saw it. It was no figment of imagination. It was there, and I was there,
0: and... Just ten days after Woodrow Derenberger's encounter with Injured Cold, another series of bizarre events began to unfold all around the region. That's next on Euphomet Obscura. Gunshots. It's a lot of gunshots. It's <laughs> a lot of gunshots.
2: I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere. This is where people come to shoot their guns off. So...
0: If you were going to say shoot people, I was going to say...
2: I mean, there's probably some of that going on out here too. Okay. We're on our way uh, down the path that leads to the TNT area, where a bunch of kids back in the 60s were making out and. Mothman appeared, chased him all the way back to town for maybe, what, 10 miles outside of Point Pleasant mm-hmm. downtown? Mm-hmm. And just in the wilderness of West Virginia. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's it's forest. There's uh, high weeds everywhere. and You know, you wouldn't even know the TNT domes were out here unless you knew where to look. They're hidden in the brush.
0: And we sprayed enough tick repellent on ourselves to Essentially, inoculate ourselves from
2: ever having children, right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, when people find us dead later, they're just gonna attribute it to Mothman and not Raid. (laughs) We can keep walking.
0: Explain to me what I'm seeing right here. It's
2: just a, a small hole in a patch of vines and leaves and trees, and through that. Really dark forest hole. In there lies the one of the TNT areas, one of the domes. Let's see what it looks like inside. Yeah,
1: let's do it. Do you play when you are lightning? Hello. The first sighting of him was in and around these specific bunkers.
0: Late in the evening of November 15th, two young married couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallett, had a bizarre encounter as they drove past the TNT area. The couple saw two large glowing red eyes that were attached to something that looked like a man, but bigger maybe six or seven feet tall, with wings folded against its back. They panicked, sped away, but just a short time later, they saw the same creature on a hillside near the road. It spread its 10 to 12 foot wings and flew into the air. It gave chase to their car, which was now traveling at over 100 miles per hour. When they got into town, they made a report of the event to Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead. They would not be the only ones to report the strange creature that night. At about 10.30 p.m. on that same evening, Newell Partridge, a building contractor who lived in Salem, about 90 miles from Point Pleasant, was watching television when the screen went dark. He reported an eerie pattern filled the screen, and that he heard a loud whining sound from outside that raised in pitch, And then stopped. On the front porch, Partridge's dog, Bandit, began to howl as he grabbed his flashlight and went out to see what was going on. When he got outside, he saw Bandit looking at the barn, 150 yards from the house. Partridge shined the flashlight in that direction and spotted two red circles that looked like bicycle reflectors. The red orbs were not like any animal's eyes he had ever seen. Bandit, a hunting dog and protective of his territory, took off across the yard in pursuit of the glowing red eyes. Partridge commanded him to stop, but Bandit was hot on its trail. Partridge ran back into the house to get his shotgun, but after crossing the threshold, he became too frightened to go back out. That night, he would lay in bed with gun by his side. A few days later, Bandit is still gone, and Partridge reads in the newspaper about the winged creature sightings in Point Pleasant the same night of his own. One statement he reads chills him to the bone. Roger Scarberry, a member of the group who was terrorized at the TNT plant, said that as they entered the city limits of Point Pleasant, they saw a large dog lying on the side of the road. A few minutes later, on the way back out of town, the dog was gone. They even stopped to look for the dog. Knowing they had passed it just a short time before, Noelle Partridge immediately thought a bandit who was never seen again.
2: What's the bulk of the graffiti that we're seeing in here? It's like teenagers saying, you know, John loves Becky. So even now, kids still come out here, mm-hmm. come out here and make out. Yeah, even today.
1: You know, talking about teenagers, just kind of at that time in their lives, there. You know, a lot of the time, poltergeist activity happens around that specific time. So there's like this outpouring of energy that they're just putting out. And if this was the place where like everyone in the area came to make out, maybe that's why Mothman was like picking up on the vibes, and he just sort of like picked this place. Or maybe it was, you know, the fact that it was full of explosives or I've always tried to figure out why why here or maybe it was because it was very isolated in a place where he you know could come and be alone I don't know or maybe it's dimensional you I don't really have an answer for that
2: Keel always talked about window areas where the veil was thin and things could come in and out but What if it's places like this where kids have come and put so much pent-up energy and aggression and, you know, sexual tension into a place that they've just ripped that hole open?
1: Strange shape of these buildings and, you know, maybe it has something to do with locationally where it is, just is the perfect spot for something like that to kind of manifest. Magnifies it, maybe. Everything you say in here lasts longer. Like it has a vibration that carries it, like further almost, than when we're standing outside and everything sounds flat. And like once you've said it, it's done. Everything in here, it's like elongated, stretched out, vibrational.
2: But you know what's interesting about that? So is everything that happens in Point Pleasant. It just vibrates out for decades. It even grows. I mean Mothman was only here for a year, but has he ever really left?
1: I think I think he's like an imprint on a place. Like he's in, he's imprinted into this place back then and now and, and always and I think he he will continue being here. Um, whether people remember him or not he's, he's part of this place now
2: we're always talking about the idea of retro psychokinesis and how like the ripple doesn't just move forward in time, impactful events move backward in time too so all anybody's doing with the Mothman Museum and the statue and all the people who come to the domes looking for Mothman, that's just rippling backwards, too. Making that moment even more impactful than it initially was. You know, people reading Kiel's books, people watching the movie, putting all that energy out, it flows backwards, too. Just making this an even more powerful place, making that vibration bigger, longer.
0: Many would come to believe that the sightings of Mothman as well as UFO sightings, encounters with Men in Black, and Woodrow Derenberger's run-in with Indrid Cold were all related. For nearly a year, strange happenings continued in the area. Researchers, investigators, and monster hunters descended into Point Pleasant. By this time, most of the sightings had come to an end, and Mothman had seemed to have faded away, but the story of Point Pleasant had not yet ended.
2: Uh, these sightings continued for a year and really frightened the entire town, sent the town to a panic, and shortly after uh, the Silver Bridge collapsed. So a lot of people believe that the Silver Bridge collapse was, you know, a being foretold by the Mothman showing up, like he was a harbinger of doom. And a lot of people died in the accident, like it was a big tragedy. We're right by the water where the Silver Bridge collapsed. The Memorial is actually just maybe hundred yards down that way, but we're looking at where the Silver Bridge used to be. Now it's gone.
0: On the evening of December 15th, 1967, the 700-foot-long bridge linking Point Pleasant to Ohio suddenly collapsed, well-filled with rush-hour traffic. Dozens of vehicles plunged into the dark waters of the Ohio River and 46 people were killed. Two of those were never found, and the other 44 are buried together in a nearby cemetery. The collapse of the Silver Bridge made headlines all over the country. Television crews from everywhere descended on the town. The local citizens were stunned with horror and disbelief. And the effect of the tragedy is still being felt today. We just got out of the museum, and it was it was really heavy walking through and looking at all those newspaper articles about how many people were missing how many people died, their constant update to the community, this running toll of death. Uh, that's an extreme tragedy that really leaves an imprint on, on any town, let alone a small town like this, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the type of thing that the town never forgets. We were just, I think the last time we were here in this area, uh, they were having the Silver Bridge Memorial just around that time. And I mean, it was full, it was a ton of people here. It left a huge impact on the area and so it's interesting because I think consequently Mothman also made a huge impact on the area because that all that stuff was happening around the same time so it's just like interconnected regardless of whether he really was a harbinger of doom or not those stories are stuck together so it's never gonna leave. They've got statues erected to Mothman and they have statues memorializing the people who died. And they're right around the same time period.
1: When we were here last, we uh, were doing an investigation of this area, and we were staying at the Low Hotel, which is the haunted hotel, directly in front of where the bridge collapsed. And when we were doing the Estes method, what ended up happening is uh, we—I felt like we were starting to communicate with some of the people who died during the bridge collapse, and they they seemed very trapped in their death state and so there was a lot of confusion there was a lot of chaos and a lot of feelings of terror and not and confusion and um, it it was as if they were literally coming up out of the water and, and crossing this little area and just in that window that we can literally see right there was where our hotel room was and they were just going towards the nearest light and it was it was the the responses were chaotic as if we were communicating with people who died like literally right there. It was eerie.
0: What part of this story interests you the most? Hmm.
1: I think what interests me the most is the timeline. Um, It's the idea that this town experienced this really bizarre phenomena for an entire year. And that... In a lot of ways, some of the people who lived here felt like they were being stalked and kind of watched and harassed by this thing. And and they didn't understand why it was happening. And to me, the idea of just this possible creature or whatever it is that Mothman is kind of just holding up in like a small town like Point Pleasant uh, for an extended period of time and kind of popping up here and there. And like just kind of being this character that like exists in this town over a short period of time and then having the whole thing end with this horrible tragedy where every person in this community is affected by, by it and, you know, that many people dying in such a small place, it's affecting every single person who lives here. So I think for me the timeline is the creepiest. It's just this sort of slow burn where he was here kind of stalking and preparing people for what was inevitably going to happen, but they didn't know what was going to happen. And that's super, super creepy. I mean.
2: This, this case, the Mothman case, spreads out in so many different directions. Um, you know, when John Keel came to town, you know, he started making all these connections to things like the Men in Black and Indrid Cold. And those things have stretched into ufology circles. I mean, even up until now, there's still people who have uh, sightings of the Men in Black, and, and there's still people who claim that they've had contact with, with Indrid Cold. Um, it's left a, a, a resonance here that's stretched out. I mean, there's even places not too far from here, the Flatwoods, where the Flatwoods monster was sighted. And that left a resonance in that town. And now they have a little museum and a few little things erected to celebrate the monster there. These things, uh, they last, they stick around uh, if there's people around willing to tell the story.
0: In the spirit of the phenomenon, one strange thing in West Virginia leads to another. Greg and I are in Braxton, West Virginia. Like Point Pleasant, a place still telling its monster story. Impressive. What are we looking at here?
2: It's a big wooden chair in the image of the Flatwoods Monster. Kind of looks like you're sitting in his lap. Can you describe what this monstrosity looks like? It's actually tough because I've never seen anything that looks like it. Almost looks like a if you propped a, a manta ray on its side and you were looking at it. And you gave it a face kind of like a man with two big, bright yellow eyes. He's wearing some kind of metallic chest piece and a dress.
0: You did really good. Thanks. That's a very good description <laughs> of what we're looking at here.
2: So bizarre.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, old soda.
2: Yeah, it's so cool.
0: With its weird looks and wild sighting, the Flatwoods Monster has made the tiny town of Braxton its very own museum. I'm starting to wonder if West Virginia is cursed with creatures or is just as clever with mining its own creepy stories as it is with mining coal. All to bring a dollar to the local economy and keep these small towns alive. So, what's this all about? I don't know know the story at all.
2: Man, I, I, I don't even know the, the Flatwood story that well. You know the basics of the Flatwoods story? I mean, you got sure, to, yeah. being at the museum. I mean,
4: the basic story is you know, September 12th in 1952, some kids were playing out on the playground. Um, they saw a fiery ball in the sky uh, come down on a nearby farm. And um, they went up to investigate, and they saw the crash site. You know, it was called the crash site. Um, and. Uh, you know, it was them and, and their their mother and uh, a dog, and there was um, you know essentially what appeared behind the tree was this fellow, and uh, you know they they ran and um, that was that is the bulk of the story. And there's there's a lot more like you know the Fashino book. Um, there's a lot of Freedom of Information Act information in there. That, that there was a lot more going on in the region around that weekend uh, in those days. This um, region is just sort of like lousy with strange accounts, right? Like this oh, is... West Virginia's weird. Yeah, yeah. That's... I mean, it is. Yeah. West Virginia is weird. We've we've got all kind of crazy stuff here. Um, not just not just Braxy, but, you know, Mothman and the Wampus Cat and, uh, you know, Sheep Squatch and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these hills are of strange things. Why do, you th- why do you think that is? Why do you think this
0: part of the country or this part of the world is just
4: um, so steeped in, the, in this lore? I think a lot of it is because, you know, for the most part, we're isolated. Yeah. Um, you know, we brought a lot of different cultures into one area because of the coal mines. Um, all of that uh, folklore and legend all came with them. Um, but... Uh, you know, it, it's a little, it always seems to be a little bit darker here. It always seems to be a little bit weirder here. Yeah. So
0: you know. so what do you think is
2: going on in West Virginia?
0: Why is this place so goddamn weird?
2: I think isolation plays a part. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was born in West Virginia, but I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, so I can only speak to that. But I know part of the reason why I'm such a weirdo is we had to make our own fun. We had to go out and, you know, you found that creepy house on the edge of town. In places like West Virginia, those creepy houses are everywhere. They're everywhere, you know? And, and you know, when you don't have a mall, you're inspired to go out and, and look for the monsters in the woods. You want to keep telling those stories. The stories are all you have. And I think that's a big reason why West Virginia, you know, everything's tucked away in the mountains and. It's easy for those stories to appear. A lot of mystery here for sure. Even driving
0: over here and looking into the trees and seeing little tiny shacks and buildings and little puffs of smoke and you think, what's going on over there? You know, a lot of mystery, a lot of intrigue here, isn't it?
4: A lot of shadows. There's a a lot of woods, there's a lot of shadows. West Virginia is probably one of the few places in the United States that Um, you know, we have plots of land that human feet haven't touched. Um, I mean, it's, we have a lot of remote, we have a lot of isolation. here.
0: In a town like this, when you have headphones and a microphone on, you are the most popular person in town.
2: Lots of looks. Yeah. Lots of looks.
0: Do you, are you guys ever worried or mm, trepidatious towards the idea of being visited or having interactions with men in black? And, and just to preface, we're not talking about, like, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones.
1: <laughs> that would be scarier.
2: Yeah, that might be scarier. <laughs> um, depending on who you ask, there's people who say we've already had interactions with them. So, I mean, I, I think as far as that goes, we're more prepared than most people would probably be. I would, I, I don't want to say I would welcome that because those never seem to be things that Dana well. just shook her head like, I, um, no. no.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good, men in black. You can just go and talk to somebody else. It's just it's such a creepy idea of like just sort of being observed to me is, is strange and off-putting. So I definitely am not really interested in the idea. Even though it's true, as you say, you know, that we have had people tell us that we already are. So maybe it's happening and I just don't even know about it.
0: What is that? What do you, what do you think that's about
1: i mean we we definitely investigate some strange cases and we definitely dip our toes into some really weird uh some really weird stories and legends and so and we meet a lot of weird people and and it kind of makes sense i guess really for the most part that it's maybe already happened and we just haven't known about it
2: well i mean Investigating the Kentucky Goblin case I think is probably the closest that we've come to something like that. Being in contact with a guy who went by the name of Terry Rist, sending strange emails and sending weird coordinates to us, you know, we reached out to ufologists who knew the original person who went by the name Terry Rist, the pseudonym, and they are under the impression that whoever we talked to was a disinformation agent, a man in black trying to spin us off into some weird direction. Um, I don't know what I think about that. You know, I mean, people who look into this stuff inevitably have people look into them. Inevitably. So you just kind of expect it on some level. It's
1: already (laughs) happened. It probably already has happened. Um, That doesn't make it any less creepy. And I'm not a fan of it, but it's possible, absolutely, that... It's already happened. I mean, again, we're all kind of running in similar circles and investigating similar cases, so it would make sense.
2: It's just a matter of time for you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You'll be the first interview. You'll get the first interview with the man in black.
0: I feel like these hills have the possibility to carry endless supernatural tales. This is a place where people settled early, and in small towns, people talk. It's isolated and dark and seemingly imbued with a more mysterious energy, a penchant for revealing a new strange reality, a pleasure in pulling you deeper down the dark rabbit hole. For me, it happened while here. Other stories, including my own mind-bending, reality-shifting experience, will be told in a future Obscura episode. But for the Newkirks, they have discovered this phenomenon doesn't stop in West Virginia. It follows the Appalachian Mountains down into rural Kentucky. Where not unlike Kiel, they have been led down into an unknown country. One full of mysterious messages, UFOs, alleged creatures, and mysterious sprawling cave systems. None of this, to their excitement and dismay, ends. For now, what we're left with are stories and our efforts to find ways to communicate them in ways others can connect to. I guess we are helping keep these monsters alive in our own way, even if we don't know what they mean, even if it's scary, the unknown. Perhaps it's a listener like yourself that gets this the most. It's perhaps the brave, the passionate, the empathetic that embrace this kind of strange and engage with these stories on a personal level. For all we know, it's a harbinger of its own kind screaming through the night, warning us of impending tragedy, leading us into the darkness, so we can better see the light on the other side. Thank you for listening to Obscura. For more on the new Kirk's, check out their fantastic documentary series directed by Carl Pfeiffer called Hellier. It's available on Amazon Prime as well as hellier.tv. The series continues the Kentucky Goblin's investigation, a dramatic and curious case in which we cover the beginnings of in the original series of Euphemet. Until now, that episode, as well as the entirety of the original series, has been under lock and key, but I'm excited to announce that this Friday, we will begin to release these old episodes every week for members of our brand new Patreon. If you haven't heard of Patreon, it's a subscription membership platform where we'll have membership tiers available, each offering unique and exclusive content that gets listeners closer to this project and directly helping in producing new work on topics we all care about. The Classic Kentucky Goblins episode will be our first archive release, but Patreon members will receive a lot more. Additional information about our Patreon launch can be found shortly via social media and our Facebook group, The Society of Ufomet. I will note, with Patreon, that is extra stuff and entirely in an opt-in situation. You can still expect quality, immersive paranormal documentary podcast right here. For more on everything monster, visit weekendweird.com for feature articles on Mothman, the Flatwoods Monster, and all things paranormal. I'd like to thank AMC Shudder, the MindPod Network, Planet Weird, Evolve and Ascend, and Audio Boom for the support. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. At us on social, Twitter, and Instagram at Euphemet, and me at It's Jim Perry. This has been Euphemet Obscura. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up.